If Davy Burns starts running lads with the ball, there's absolutely no chance of me catching him. I don't think if I drove a Fiesta after him, I'd catch him. <laughs> the Football Pod with Paddy and Andy. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA podcast feed now. The OTB Podcast Network. You ain't shit. I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. My fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life, because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jim McGuinness in his life. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. Just to let you know it's Leeds one, Burnley nil in the Premier League. Matthias Cleek with the goal at Turf Moor. You can text us on five three one zero six. We're streaming the conversation as well. You can listen to us on News Talk, but also watch us on the social channels for Off the Ball for Periscope on Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube and on Facebook and on the OTB Sports app. This is the Saturday panel. We're reviewing the sporting week between now and half two with the former Leinster Connacht and Ireland hooker and the rugby coach Bernard Jackman, presenter off the bench here and sports writer Cleena Foley and the Irish Examiner sports journalist Brendan O'Brien. Bernard Cleena and Brendan, how are we all getting on? Good night. Good Thank you. I think we'll start with a bit of GAA given uh, the week that was in it with the hurling coming back last weekend. Antrim's great win over Clare. Tipperary and Limerick drawing. It's the football this weekend. We've got Kerry and Galway today. Tyrone and Donegal. My thinking, Brendan, is that when I'm thinking about the league, look, it's an unprecedented time. And I suppose you can't really complain in any way when you're seeing a Gaelic football back live, even though there's no crowds yet. But I'm kind of thinking, a knockout championship. I'd love to see teams get a second chance in the championship. Is there much meaning for the likes of Kerry, Donegal, Galway, Dublin? Um, I think it's great for the Division 3 and 4 teams. But how are you feeling? How receptive are you about the Allianz Leagues returning in football this weekend? Yeah, I, I'm still trying to get my head around the GA um, <laughs> being back, John, to be honest, because when you look at it as well, like the rugby season has kind of sat in its traditional slot. You know, OK, there's been a few changes, but it's there. It's been with us throughout the last uh, nine months or whatever. Same with the football, uh, by soccer. And, um, you know, so they've kind of trundled on regardless. We've been five months or so without the GA and to have it coming back when the sun is shining outside and, you know, we're settling into a summer... It just, I can't get my head around it for some reason. I mean, this time of year, um, I remember going down to Port Leash for a Leinster football double header about seven or eight years ago and the shimmering tarmac and, you know, 15 on 15 and some of the weaker sides would play out some really good football. So the fact that the league is starting, it's kind of hard to get my head around. And, you know, look, we have that cliche every year, John, about, you know, what's the league worth? And I suppose it's a question that's even more relevant this year with the change in formats and everything. Um, you know, it's interesting as well, a lot of the coverage that I'm reading is about Division 3. Obviously, um, the likes of Cavan and Tipperary who will be trying to get out of, of the third tier and avoid the Talchon Cup next year. And then Division 4 as well with Mickey Hart managing Louth, Enda McGinley up in Antrim, Tony McEntee in Sligo. Um, it's kind of, the league has turned football in its head um, and I suppose that says a lot about where we are at the top of the game as well I mean we'll spend the rest of the summer looking at Dublin and are any of the other four or five teams behind them capable of of, um, of chasing them a little bit better this year because 
you look at last year and once the provincial championships were done and we had the excitement of Cavan and Tipperary winning those brilliant, um, brilliant games, it, it kind of died to death. So, um, yeah, it might be starting off in a kind of a strange way and let's just hope it doesn't finish that way again. Cleaner, when I'm back in a pub in a couple of months' time, hopefully I'll be able to <laughs> talk about the meaning of life with my, my friends and, and, and strangers. Uh, but the meaning of the leagues, uh, what, what, how have you found uh, the hurting league last weekend and what are you hoping for when it comes to the Football League over the next few weeks with these north and south divisions uh, rolling into yeah, the championship? I'm struggling to get my head around it, John, to be honest. Like you have a division, you have a, a section of Division One football that's basically the Ulster Championship by another name in some ways. Um, it's very strange. I, what I thought was really noticeable last weekend was just just exactly like Brendan was saying, the lovely weather, it looked like it was championship hurling, but the pace wasn't championship hurling. So you had that weird thing where, you know, the weather looked like it was the summer, but it was the league and it's not really the summer. And you're in this kind of, you know, in some ways you could look at this league a bit like the Auburn Cup or, you know, those pre-season championships, because really all managers can do in the short space of time they have is get teams ready for the championship and hope they don't get injured. And, you know, I was listening to Niamh Moyle this morning talking about, you know, how, how, how careful managers and coaches have to be at the moment bringing players back, you know, because they've been doing so much straight line work and now you're back in, you know, multi-movement, multi-angled performance. So you've really got to be careful with them. So it's very strange. But I, I tell you one thing, you know, it will be, I, I guarantee you in two or three weeks' time, Mickey Hart will be talking about, you know, the lack of coverage of division, what is it, division, is it division four? Um, and that game in the Geraldines today, you know, up in Louth with himself and a former player, one of his most famous players on either side of a management. They, you know, will they bring more interest? Will they bring more coverage to division three and four? I hope so. I'd like to see that. Yeah, Division 4 North, uh, loud against Endham again, Lee's Antrim. Um, Bernard, the meaning of the league for you, are you excited about Gaelic football returning? Yeah, I think it's just, as, as, as both, both Brendan and Clean have said, it's the service purpose of getting back. I think it's great for uh, for those players to be back to uh, start to play games again and get ready for the championship. But no, I think it's effectively like a, a pre-season block where you'd normally play friendlies. Um, and it's just a case of trying to get players fit, trying to implement a style of play uh, and trying to give, I suppose, players an opportunity to put their hand up for the championship. So I, that's how I see it this year. Um, more than ever, it's it's really a, a glorified um, fix, or set of friendlies to get you ready for the, for the championship a little bit later on. But I think that's understandable. For Kerry and Galway, it's a big season, Brandon. Kerry uh, so disappointed to be knocked out of the championship, although it was a brilliant uh, spectacle against Cork last year. Galway had a great start to last year, then they just petered out. They'll be hoping to be at the business end come August. Yeah, um, I don't know. Was the Kerry-Cork game a great spectacle? It was a great finish. And, yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. You know, um, maybe I'm being unkind. My I just think of the knockout nature, it maybe made it a great Yeah, spectacle. yeah. And that was a great thing in the knockout uh, championship, wasn't it? I mean, it, it catered for those kind of um, occasions. But um, yeah, I mean, funnily enough, you know, we're just coming off the back of talking about the league. Who were the league champions last year? It was Kerry. If you remember, uh, David Clifford, um, I've never seen a more muted um, trophy raising spectacle I don't think he said a word I think he might have half lifted it and put the trophy back down on the table and walked off um, so yeah, that did, was the league la- Didn't Donegal have, a, have almost a B team out as well Brendan do you remember for that yeah. as well they certainly didn't have a full strength team because they were so close to championship for them Yeah so I mean look I think we were all disappointed that Kerry didn't make it through as good as that Cork um, 
that Cork victory in Porky Quay was last summer, it, it did kind of deprive us of what we had all been hoping for. I mean, Kerry, from a long way out, they looked like the most likely team to run Dublin close. And, and a real difficult, or a real problem again with the championship last year was um, like Dublin just weren't tested, really. It was Desi Farrell's first, first year in charge. There was a lot of pressure on him. Um, you know, he didn't want to be the man who would bring the the, the five-in-a-row team to a shuddering halt. And um, it just didn't happen. And Kerry falling when they fell really deprived us, deprived us of that. So it'll be interesting to see where Kerry go. I mean, there was a lot of criticism about how they set up against Cork and earlier in the league as well, that they were clearly preparing the ground for facing Dublin later on. And, you know, people talking about this wasn't Kerry values, that they weren't being true to themselves, that they needed to back themselves a bit more. So Kerry actually is is probably among the leading lights, um, a very intriguing um, case study as to how they will go in the next couple of weeks. Galway, like you say, John, I mean, they just, they were like Liverpool, really. They didn't they didn't recover from the lockdown and, and they were on free fall thereafter. But they were very impressive under Porrick Joyce before that. Um, so I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard. I, I don't see the likes of Galway making such a leap up to Dublin unless Dublin make a significant um, drop down to the others. I think in terms of teams that can catch them by catching them and not having Dublin come back to them, I think you're still looking at Kerry. Uh, Tyrone and Donegal. Tyrone, new management now, of course, Kleena, Brian Dewar and Fergal Logan. Donegal, still probably smarting over that Cavan defeat. That'll be an interesting battle today and a, a phony war, as they say, ahead of the championship. Absolutely, but I do think there will be great interest in seeing, you know, that that, that new Tyrone management because, you know, there was such a, there was such a, if you like, there was such a lobby, if you like, there for so long that, you know, Mickey Hart had stayed too long. You know, there was such mixed feelings about it in the county. So I do think, and particularly Doher, Doher just was, I mean, he was just such a brilliant footballer himself and his work rate was extraordinary. And I think that, you know, whatever team's going to play for him and whoever they're going to have back and, you know, they're still waiting for a few big names to come back, their work rate will be back up, I think, like it was because I just think Doer is such a driven character. He is going to drive that team back. So, you know, it'll be really interesting to see. But Ulster, you know, you can argue, like, even the way the league has been lined up, like, Ulster is really the only province that has, you know, that really tight, you know, I think a serious provincial competition. So... Like, I'd, I'd just love to see the league used to lead into a championship, you know. And I think, you know, I still feel that, you know, we all say the league doesn't matter. And I think at the moment, you know, it really doesn't matter in terms of it's just been used for preparation. But somewhere down the line, I'd like to see them make it matter by making it in some way seed teams or, you know, lead into a championship or link it with the championship or do something. And they are constricting the season now at the inter-county season. So they're making it smaller. They're making it more manageable for players. So why not make, this year's going to be an exception, but in the future, why not make it so that every game matters, if you like? 5-3-1. You have two two leashes on on the panel today, which is very unusual. So, um, you know, we'll be keeping an eye we as well. We can't turn it into a leash discussion, though, unfortunately. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> 53106. Come on, folks. People forget that Kerry, the next man for most of the 2019 drawn final against Dublin. Still, they couldn't beat them. Dublin won the replay as well by six points when they had 15 men. They also won last year's final by five points, says Mick and Cork. It's very simple, Clean, As you said, in the future, not this year, we've obviously had these extenuating circumstances, but in the future, play the provinces in the spring, is my view, 
and then I have a league championship in the summer with Division 3 and 4 teams playing meaningful games with a trophy and a Croke Park final at the end of it hurling wise Brendan Antrim were great last weekend beating Clare that was getting the hurling league ignited and Tipperary and Cork this evening should be fascinating yeah, I mean, Antrim was obviously the standout um, result, and not just result, but performance last weekend. I mean, the manner in which they beat them last week, John, they fell behind early. Um, I think Clare had the wind up in Belfast, and, you know, Clare, how many times do you see one of the so-called weaker hurling counties lose heart in that situation? But but Antrim, I mean, it was highlighted on, on TV later on, the work rate that they showed, some of the points they scored, that Neil McManus one from his own 45 was ridiculous like so the manner in which they did it was fantastic and Darren Gleeson is doing a, a superb job up there and you know I suppose not to take away from that but the disappointment is that with the likes of the Antrims and the West Meads and the Leashes it always seems there's one of them kind of making the step up while the others are kind of standing still or maybe losing ground and you look at West Mead and um, Leash and the trimmings they took last week very very disappointing um you know, looking at Leash specifically, the 21 wides or something, and Davy Fitzgerald, what did they win? 417 to 10 points, and Davy Fitzgerald could come out and say that wasn't good enough for Wexford. So, what you'd love to see is, I don't know how it happens, but just see a, a more a greater depth and breadth to these kind of mezzanine counties between the top tier and, and maybe, maybe the second tier. And it just doesn't seem to be happening, and it seems to be dependent on the likes of the Gleeson or, um, you know, an Eddie Brennan or a Cheddar Plunkett coming in and by sheer force of personality moving the thing on, getting all the players on board at the, at the same time. So I don't know what the answer there, but yeah, Antrim was absolutely fantastic. And I suppose Tip and Limerick was was um, a, nice, um, a nice headline act on the first weekend. You know, we talked about the football and how, you know, is it a bit of shadow boxing and all that. But within all this, there are little kind of subplots and the one between Tip and Limerick was neither of them wanted to live or wanted to lose. Limerick want to keep that Indian sign over the likes of Tip and Tip having invested so much in getting the lead against Limerick last week for them to lose you know having been outscored I think they're outscored five points to one in the end and, and, and snatched a draw but had they lost from that kind of position in the end it would have been a little bit of a a dagger to the ribs um, coming into the championship. So, yeah. um, look, I mean, we talked about the time of year with, with, with the football coming back as well. For the hurling, it's a godsend. I mean, for these guys to be coming back with the sods the way they are, it's, it's, way, yeah. it's the way hurling's meant to be played. And Cork uh, tonight uh, started well last weekend, clean uh, five goals, 16 years without an All-Ireland. Kieran Kingston will be looking to build momentum now. Yeah, and I thought what I thought was interesting about them last weekend was just, you know, they seem to be playing a slightly different style as well, John, you know. So that's going to be very interesting to see, you know, are they adapting? Have they changed the style of Hurling as well a little bit, I think, because, um, you know, they're one of those teams that, again, need to develop central players. We saw with a couple of teams last week, particularly defensively, you know, just need to sort out players. So that's why I think that this league is just going to be really used. Um, like last year's, even last year's season was so you know, broken up for teams that I think the best that they can do really is try and line up their teams for a championship. And Cork just, you know, I mean, he's made some big calls down there in terms of people he's he's not picked on the panel. Um, he's got lots of young talent there as well. But it is, I think it's an interesting year for them. Um, but I don't think, I think Kingston, as a manager, he has, he probably has hurlers. So it is about, you know, getting them in the right places as well. And I, like, I was really interested just 
just even in the way he spoke after the match last week, like he always, even when he was in uh, with Jimmy Barry and that, I always felt him. He's just a very measured kind of a man. And I think he might be a good person to be there at the moment. Bernard, Tig Furlong this week, a one-year deal, 28 years of age. I, I kind of think to myself, more power to him. Wait and see what the situation is in a year's time. I'm sure he'll be in similar form. Hopefully he'll be injury-free. It's all about knowing your value in life. I don't know how long you get it at the top as a rugby player and Tyke Furlong knows his value and he's just waiting to see what happens in a year's time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually think um, both parties deserve credit. So I, I think the RFU were able to get a deal done in, in obviously what's, you know, very difficult circumstances. Um, obviously, it wasn't um, lucrative enough or Tyke has other ambitions. He didn't want to tie himself down for longer than a year. But the, the, the main priority was that he was available for for Leinster and Ireland for the next 12 months. And uh, I think, you know, he's at a peak of his powers now. This contract, or the one he signs next, uh, should be the most lucrative of, it, of his career unless the market changes and, and salaries go up. So um, I, I think, obviously, with the current climate, it was difficult to get that three-year, four-year, or three-year three contract, probably, that, you know, um, sorts yourself out financially. Um, uh, so rather than actually take something that wasn't optimum back yourself to, to play well we, we saw him in the Six Nations he was bang on form he's the, the front runner to be first choice tight head for the, for the British and Irish Lions and yeah in a year's time the RFU might have more security and, and clarity around what their revenue streams are like and be able to, to give him the contract that, that he wants or if he wants to to potentially go and have a, have a stint somewhere else well then he's free to do that so um, you know I, I have no issue I know some people were worried about it and trying to read too much into it but for me, when you look at what's happening, the RFU have managed to uh, keep all the frontline players on, on central contracts, which is, um, you know, which is, uh, I suppose, satisfying and, and gives us a bit of security and stability. But Tyke Furlong, say if he did leave and move to France next year, uh, a year out from World Cup, we couldn't have him not in the in the in the sphere or in the in the yes. picture. So uh, Bernard, it kind of then would put the IRFU into a big quandary because we had this uh, Johnny Sexton aside, this unwritten rule, and as Simon Zebo experienced that, if you're not here, you're not involved. Yeah, I actually don't think there's an issue with that. Uh, I wouldn't be against. Them, them relaxing that rule. Like, you have to understand that the four Irish provinces, particularly the three Irish provinces, and Connacht obviously um, don't get as uh, don't have as big a budget um, as the other as the other three. Um, they have budgets that compare very favourably with the top teams in, in England and and most of the teams in France. And obviously, there's a tax break to be a professional rugby player here. Plus. Uh, you're more likely to play for Ireland if you play uh, in Ireland, um, and there's obviously a strong identity with the with the provinces that the players play for. So, I don't think there'll be a mass um, exodus of players at all. But what I think it could do is, it could, you know, obviously ideally you keep your top end players there. But if you can't afford them, or they really want to have that experience abroad and of their 14 year career, they want to spend two or three years away, like you know Johnny spent two away. Um, then allow them to do that. The New Zealanders don't uh, throw, or I suppose, har hamper their chances of winning World Cups by saying between World Cups players can't leave or take career breaks, etc. They they they're flexible in that, and we seem to have one rule which is obviously very strict, um, which to be honest isn't actually helping us get where we want to get. If you look at what the the key objectives are from an RFU point of view, it's to get to at least a semi final in a World Cup, um, to be in the top three in the world, um, to win European Cups regularly and we're, we're slipping away on all those uh, or we're not achieving those particularly the World Cup one um, 
and we have a rule that keeps all the players in Ireland. So I don't think there's a big issue with it. Um, and it's something I think will come come to a, te- a head probably this time next year. If it's not for Ty Furlong, it could be for someone else, someone who wants to go away but still play for Ireland. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, as I said, I think that rule, uh, it was fine at the time it was brought in, but it's not leading us to where we want to get to. So it should be, it should be up for discussion. Yeah, I, John, I was always curious about it. I, I don't know that it is even a rule, is it, Bernard? Like, Schmidt was very strong on it. You could break it for Sexton, um, but not for anybody else. So how is that a rule? Um, and, and I was always confused about why it was there. It was there to stop players getting poached by people with lots of money. That's how I understood it. Um, but then also it was there, I think it was argued, fairly at the time that it was it was there also to make sure the players didn't get overplayed maybe in some other leagues but it doesn't make sense to me and for example now I can't see <laughs> it's just he's such a quintessential Irish person everything about him um maybe you'd see different Bernard when you know from your time in France okay. maybe you could see a team in France you'd want to go to but I, I, I couldn't um I don't understand why that rule is there, and I think it goes against the grain. I think look okay. at Ty Byrne; he's a classic example. Let's 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 pick players. It doesn't matter where they're playing. Okay, we got to take a break. Cleena uh, Foley, um, Bernard Jackman, and Brendan O'Brien on the Saturday panel reviewing the week. If you want to get in touch or any questions for our panel, you can text us on five three one zero six. Don't go away. We're back after the news here on Off the Ball Saturday. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. And this is Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us 53106. You can tweet us at Off the Ball. Leads to Burnley nil in the Premier League. Just watching it here. 74 minutes on the watch at Turf Moor. Matthias Cleek and Jack Harrison with the goals for Leeds. And we're getting prepped as well for our OTB Sports UEFA Champions League final preview show with Pepsi Max coming your way from May the 27th. We'll have Teddy Sheringham and uh, Denise O'Sullivan on the show and more guests to be confirmed. So head over to otbsports.com forward slash events to get your virtual tickets now and Pepsi Max maximum taste no sugar hashtag for the love of it so we're back with the Saturday panel we're reviewing the sporting week just gone with the former Leinster Connacht and Ireland hooker and rugby coach Bernard Jackman presenter of Off the Bench and sports writer Cleena Foley and the Irish examiner sports journalist Brendan O'Brien you can listen to us on News Talk and watch us on the social channel as well for Periscope on Twitter at Off the Ball YouTube, Facebook and on the OTB Sports app I want to talk about Rory McIlroy the PGA Championship starts this Thursday at Kiowa Island in South Carolina he won there a major back in 2012 he won the PGA the one to make a trophy back then but he hasn't won a major Rory McIlroy in seven years he won last week the Wells Fargo Championship his first victory on the tour since November of 2019 great win he's now got a new coach as well as Michael Bannon he's got Pete Cowan coaching him Rory McIlroy he's got Bob Rotella a mental mind guru as well who's worked with some brilliant major champions because of his brilliance itself I think Rory now is working with the right people any new people he's working with are now the right people to be working with and Bernard Jackman it's great to see such a brilliant Irish athlete back in the in the winner's enclosure yeah, it's been a long time, 553 days. Um, I I don't watch a huge amount of golf, but when I saw he was in contention, um, I, I was glued to it, and, and I thought I thought he showed such composure. And, and ironically, um, the part of his game that's usually very strong, which is uh, hitting fairways, was was disastrous. I think he, he only yeah he already he only hit 19 fairways all week, which is the fewest by a PGA winner in 33 years. So it was the other parts of his game, and I think you know his his new. Coach Pete Cowan was saying, "Look, I haven't fixed him yet." And it was actually um, his mental edge and his caddy, you know, deserve uh, huge credit. Harry Diamond, obviously, who was starting to get, was getting a lot of criticism. Um, obviously, 
this period hasn't been as successful as it was with his predecessor, J.P. Fitzgerald. But um, I think, you know, just when it came to it in the 18th, how he, how he convinced uh, Rory to, to take the drop penalty um, is, is going to be a huge moment for their relationship as well. and just confirms um, that he has the ability under under pressure to, to help Rory get over the line. So hopefully, yeah, it's the start of... Um, a resurgence, and because uh, yeah, I think we've it's been a long time, and, and uh, the game has probably missed him a little bit being at the top end of it. He does have the X Factor, Brendan. Is he the biggest Irish sports star in the world? We saw Conor McGregor this week with 180 million dollars earned, a lot of that based around entertainment. But Forbes magazine published that more so than Messi, Ronaldo, Roger Federer. He's certainly, I suppose, the biggest active sports person. You couldn't call Conor McGregor active in anything but a social media um, manner. Uh, yeah, definitely he is. Like you, you look at what he's won, even though, like you say, John, it's seven years since his last um, his last major. I just find some of the some of the reaction to his win on Sunday very, very interesting. I was watching it in Sky Sports, and I, I don't know what feed they have. I think it's one of the, the American stations that they picked it up on but um, one of the commentators as he was making the walk from the 18th to the scoring hut said um, this makes Rory the favourite for, for Valhalla and I just thought you know obviously he's straight, straight after the win and all that and there's a little bit of adrenaline going in the, in the commentary box but I thought it was very interesting and just some of the things that I, I looked at during the week this is his, um, his 15th title since he won his last major in um, 2014. So he's been here before. He's won plenty of titles, but he, it's never been enough to make him step up. There's also the point of view, um, as Bernard mentioned, there's a lot of talk about Harry Diamond and is this the start of something else? This was his sixth win with Harry Diamond on the bag. So in, in, when you put it in those terms, this isn't a bright new dawn. It's it's continuation of what we've seen before and it still leaves unquestioned you know, can he do it at the majors? Because the way he won in Quail Hollow last weekend is not how you're going to win um, a major championship. There's also the field as well. And I, I'm not disparaging any of the golfers who are in and around the leaderboards. They're exceptional golfers. But Abraham Anser, Keith Mitchell, um, Victor Hovland, exceptional golfers. But to use a Fergieism, they're not top, top golfers. So it's going to be a very different challenge as well, you know? Um, I, and another thing struck me as well. I mean, he's changed his grips, he's changed his irons, he's changed his putter. He's talked even the way he's putting. You can see he's he's not going through all the routines. He's getting up and playing a bit more golf, you know, rather than overthinking things. And had he not won on Sunday, had that ball gone into the creek, had Harry Diamond not said what he said to him, and Rory done a bit of a Jean Van de Velde or something. Would we be looking at everything he's done now and saying he's literally throwing, throwing darts at a dartboard and, and waiting for one to hit a hit a bullseye? So it's very, very, you know, we all know it's thin lines between a pat in the back and a kick in the arse. Um, so I think it's brilliant that he's come back. I'm not playing it down at all. The mental fortitude that he showed was was superb. And even before 18, you look at those bunker shots that he played on 14 and 15. Nobody's talking about them, and they were exceptional. Absolutely exceptional, exceptional shot. So uh, you'd, you'd hope that as people are saying, this has answered questions over his hunger, over his mental fortitude, as Bernard said, over the, the relationship with himself and, and Harry Diamond. But I just remain to be convinced that this is the start of the next chapter of Rory's career. And we're going to see him start to win another couple of majors starting with the PGA next week. Uh, Rodrigo scored twice in quick succession for Leeds, who lead Burnley now by four goals to nil in the Premier League. Finishing the season well, 
uh, Bielsa side uh, in the Premier League. They're going to be a little bit better in mid-table. What constitutes success for Rory McIlroy going forward, uh, Kleena, in the next few years? Does he need to get that major tally up and running? Uh, He seems a happy man. He was wife and daughter there last week, which is great to see. Uh, For me, he still has that artistry. He still has that natural verve and uh, vim and and talent when he's on song, the swagger that you could feel that. I really think he's going into this week with a favourites chance. I I think he's now working with the right people. The new people are the right people. Bob Bertella has had countless uh, major champions go through his his mind uh, school, as it were. Paul Roger Carrington being one of them. But but swing is such a vital thing, John, isn't it? In a in a sport like golf, like it's 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 their starting point. <clears throat> and he's, he was he was so wild again, like still a bit wild off the tee last week, and that's the worry. And and I think um I think that swing is you know such a central thing, and he's changed so much that I don't I am very much with Brendan on this as well that um you know in a in a in a in a top class tournament in in a in one of the majors. You know, when the pressure's really on and all of the top guys are around you, that's a very different thing than what he won last week. And, and when he won the PGA, I think it was eight or nine years ago, he won it by eight shots. Like, he was he was that far ahead of the field. You know, the world of golf has changed. All these young guys have come up behind him. What was lovely to see was that thing that you say. Like, he's a confidence player. He definitely has that bounce. And when things don't go well, he's one of those players, you see his shoulders drop straight away. You know, he just can't hide it. And... I don't know whether he's, you know, I, I've always felt that he really needs to work more on, on his mental game as well. But it's interesting that he's worked so much physically on his game. Um, but look, it was lovely to see him back. But I, I'd, I'd reiterate a lot. I think Brendan's right. I think let's not get carried away here. Um, I think he's got a big chance next week. I have to say, I think he's, I think, I think he's back. I, I do, but maybe I've, I've said that before. Uh, Rory, well, John, Mac- you know a lot more about it than I do. Well, I don't, well, I don't know about that. But Rory McIlroy, I don't know if he's going to turn up in Tokyo. It, like I was thinking, it was Rory and Shane Larry were going to be the Irish competitors at the Tokyo Olympics? Uh, I haven't heard much talk about that recently. Whether whether they will go, um, but at the moment, Team Ireland are going. Uh, it is going ahead. It, it seems. I think it's mad uh, in, in ways. Bernard Jackman, the Japanese don't want it. Uh, yeah. Like like most of their like the, the, that countless surveys, their people don't want it. They've had less than three percent of the country vaccinated. I know the athletes. A lot of them are going to be vaccinated, including our own, going over there. But it seems like they're hurtling towards a situation where they don't want to lose face. And they've also put billions in a sinkhole of cost into this thing. Do you think it should go ahead? Well, look, I don't think it should go ahead. I think, yeah, as you said, only 3% have been vaccinated. 70% of the population don't want it. Um, there's, I think, nine uh, prefectures are now in a, in a state of emergency with the fourth wave. Uh, they have less hospital beds per capita than most Western countries. And the the Union of Doctors have come out this week and, and stressed to the government they, they don't think it should come to, go to a head. But the contract uh, is quite particular with the Olympics. The contract is uh, the only people who can cancel this is the IOC. Um, uh, so there's huge pressure. Um, well, there's, there's obviously the, the onus is on the IOC, and but in their charter, I think it's if the safety of the athletes is is in question, um, they need to make that call. But from from a Japanese point of view as well, obviously there's seventy percent of the of the population against it, and high profile you know athletes like the tennis player Naomi Osaka has come out and said she doesn't think it should go ahead. Um, but there's also that other element of the of the population who 
who see it being very important from an economic point of view. So the Japanese economy is um, has been stagnating. They're obviously coming back from the, the nuclear disaster the, um, and a couple of other natural disasters. And, and some people in Japan see it as being a way to to, to kick off a, a new era of, of um, in Japanese economy and, and pride in the society, etc. So it's a fine balance. But I think the problem is it's with the IOC. And when Japan, any country that takes on um, the right to have the, the Olympics gives away the right to cancel it, it goes back to them. So Thomas Bach, the head of the IOC, was supposed to go to uh, Japan over the last couple of weeks, but he's cancelled due to the numbers. I mean, it's looking more and more doubtful. And it's only ever been cancelled three times, all during World War period. So um, I think it's very, it's hanging on uh, by, the, by the skin of its teeth at the moment, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if at the end of May... I think they have to... By the end of May, they're, at the moment, they're working towards a 50% capacity... Um, and they need to start refunding tickets, etc. So I would be surprised if by the end of May it's not called either way, and, and um, I would say it's probably more unlikely than likely at the moment. Yeah, dozens of Japanese towns have now abandoned players to host athletes. Cleaner, uh, it's it's an unprecedented situation over there. Obviously, one thing that people haven't spoken about is the heat as well. The heat will be oppressive in July and August, but are you uneasy about yeah. this Olympic Games potentially going ahead? Because Japan can't step in. They can't step in. Uh, yeah. but they don't want to. That's the thing. I, they don't want to I, lose I, face. No, and also, um, of the three that were cancelled, they were all caused by wars, and, and Tokyo in 1940 was one of them, and I think that's the thing with them as well, too. But, like, let's be honest, so much of it is about money. Um, I'll be honest, put my hand up. First of all, I'm meant to be going. I'm meant to be working at the Paralympics, so I'm due to go to Japan um, if it comes off. Um, whether it should come off or not, I'm, I have very mixed feelings on it. For the athletes, you know, I really feel I'd love it to come off for them. And yet I know as well that there's been so much inequity even in the qualifying, John. Do you know what I mean? We still have athletes chasing qualifications so late in the year and, and some of them will be chasing it right up. And that's that makes it very hard for them to compete against people. Maybe you got qualification last year. Like the whole system, there's a Canadian boxer actually suing, a female boxer suing the, OS, um, the International Committee because one of her qualifying tournaments winning the Americas was just cancelled. And this is what's happening to athletes all the time. So how they're staying focused, I don't know. They really do, like, I'm a big Olympic fan. I know people aren't. It was one of the reasons I fell in love with sport many years ago. Um, I do think it's a unique event. It, it's a showcase for sports that don't get a showcase. And particularly in the past when TV coverage wasn't like it was now. It was the time that you got to see athletes in other sports you know and that's when I fell in love with lots of different sports and I think it has that ability still to inspire people but certainly you'd worry about the fact that so few of the Japanese have been vaccinated at this stage only three to five percent um they've lost 12,000 people to this virus you know they have serious health concerns and a right to have them now I think the fact that the athletes are now getting free vaccines from Pfizer that at least when you feel they're not taking those from the rest of society, all our normal vaccination things are going there. This is a special once off that will help, but it's not going to be the same, John, you know, um, anybody who's ever worked at an Olympics knows the, the thing about the Olympics that's lovely for everybody involved is just that feeling of kinship. The volunteers are amazing. The athletes stop and talk to people, you know, that they might, you know, some of them that are so, you know, high powered and so, uh, away from normal life, if you like, all of that is there. So I, I, I have reservations about it going going ahead, but I think somebody's going to have to make, like Bernard said, a hard decision very soon. 
because um, there's there's just it's 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 come to a point now where it's just uh, either go or don't. I was in Rio and uh, the empty stadiums uh, for the 100 metres final, uh, half empty for the 100 metres final. They, they priced the locals out of it. Um, it was a circus that yeah. came into town. They dropped it in the middle of Rio and they didn't care about the, 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 the natives. They could have had people uh, like impoverished people um, uh, every, giving them a John, bit of... Every, every Olympics now is, is like... In fact, the Paralympics are much more democratic. I was in Rio for the Paralympics and the locals, there were much better crowds because they could afford the tickets. The tickets were a dollar each. So there's a load of questions you ask and I'm sure Brend- Brendan would feel the same, having, you know, that the Olympics is a circus and there's a lot wrong with it now. But I still think that there's a lot right with it as well. I think this is showing, though, how wrong it is. Uh, Brandon, isn't it? This, this this determination from the IOC to get this done when the, the Japanese don't want it. Yeah, and it was interesting during the week, the Japanese Prime Minister, um, as Bernard said, pointed out that it's up to the IOC, but that yeah. I think the quote was something like, um, the Olympics won't come first. And, you know, all the talk about what the IOC might do or the local organising committee, um, it may be that if cases just continue going the way they're going, that the decision will be made for them that they'll have no um, no say in the matter. It'll just be a fait accompli. Um, I don't know how likely that is to happen. I don't know enough about, you know, the rates in, in Japan or whatever. As Bernard said, their, their beds per capita is not what the rest of the, the, the first world would have. Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, dependent then. I mean, I don't know, was it Bernard or Clean that said it? What sort of crowds are we going to have? I mean, that will go a long way towards swinging some sort of public opinion as well. And as well as that, um, like the Olympics is, as we know, an enormous undertaking. You're talking like 14,000 athletes alone and then, you know, support staff, everything else. It's a huge influx into a country at a time when they're they're not letting people in. But you have to say as well that um, sports teams are among the safest bubbles out there. I mean, we've seen in Irish rugby for particular, in particular that, you know, they are safe environments. Um, Leinster had to come back from La Rochelle and they were, they were housed in a hotel in Stillorgan and yet they, they didn't see anybody really from leaving Dublin and, and, and arriving back in Dublin. Yeah, 14,000 athletes is a difference, but, um, it, you know, my worry would be, going back to Rio again, somebody like the Ryan Lochte affair, remember with the petrol station and the, mm. the controversy around that. You know, if just one of those happens or two of those happens, that creates an enormous stink and, and things will get out of hand. So I'm saying as clean, um, I'm, I'm accredited for the Olympics. I don't know if I'm going yet. People have to press the the, the, the button on, on whether to go and we're all just hanging around waiting to see. I've mixed views on it as well, but I, I you can't get away from the sense that, you know, if there's such um, a depth of public feeling against it, that it is hard to justify it on, on that level. Petition got in this week, 350,000 online signatures calling for it to be to be called off. Um, but I think the next couple of weeks in terms of um, COVID numbers, I think will make a decision one way or another. I was reading a piece from yeah, Derby O'Rourke. Go on, Sorry, I was just reading a piece of clean from Derville O'Rourke in the Irish Independent uh, as well about our prospects if it does happen that uh, we don't have an industry to support track and field in this country and comparable to other sports and it was a really good point with Sonia Sullivan and John Tracy on the show last week uh, speaking about marathon running two Olympic medal winners mm. to me we're galaxies away from having uh, athletes that will win uh, track and field medals at the Olympic Games 
Are we? Yeah, but to me, that's not what the to me that's not what the Olympics is about. It's not about winning medals. You know, we saw London 2012, where you know England, the Brits had you know won lots of medals, and afterwards there was tons of you know there still is ongoing you know looks at you know the the way some of their sports are being run and and how well they're being you know what the sort of management of their sports are and how well they're treating athletes. I don't think the Olympics is about winning medals. We're a very small country. We have exceptional rowers at the moment. Um, you know, that's one thing we know we are absolutely, if our rowers get there, they will win medals because they are the top of the world. And we have some in Lucerne this weekend trying to qualify to, to join them. But, you know, in some ways to me, it's about, you know, it is about an ideal, I think, John, you know, and yeah. I, there's always this big debate afterwards. Oh, how many medals did we win? You know, and I often used to say, and I, I, London 2012 is a great example. And said sometimes I think, you know, don't be looking for the medals, you know, look for performances and look for things that that make you proud or or make your kids want to take up a sport. I think that's more important than medals. Uh, just on um, uh, Sport Ireland, Bernard, uh, a report this week saying participation has declined in 2021. Obviously it would because we haven't been able to do anything, but walking remains high. Have you found yourself walking more uh, recently during the pandemic? How have you managed to keep fit? <laughs> Uh, all my career, I, I wouldn't even walk to the shop, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of all duck or no dinner. So I bought a Fitbit and um, I was out uh, doing a good bit of walking. I've slipped off the last couple of weeks. But yeah, look, at, I think it's been, um, it's obviously been on a few things we could do. And I, I, I like trying to catch up on podcasts. I used to used to catch up on podcasts when I was traveling, but obviously I'm not traveling anywhere. So um, yeah, I did I did increase it um, a little bit. And yeah, it's, it's probably... One of the only positives out of the whole thing was I think a lot more people are getting out and getting some, um, you know, some low resistance exercise and getting a bit healthier. Brandon, are you a walker? I am actually. Yeah, well, I was up to recently, but um, I'm actually sitting here with a hot water bottle on my my hip groin area because uh, I have an old thirty year old injury that's flared up again. So um, I'm kind of breaking down a little bit. But normally I would be. Yeah, I found I found through the lockdowns very up and down going through. You know, uh, we got a dog recently as well. Maybe that's why I'm, I'm suffering. I was out walking that little guy three times a day. But yeah, I found during the lockdowns very, very up and down in terms of a good spurt of maybe six weeks or three months and then two months of eating chocolate biscuits. So pretty, <laughs> pretty much like everybody else out there. What, type, what types of chocolate biscuits, Brandon? I'm a digestive man. I'm old school in a lot of ways. Are you a digestive person, Tina? Well, I'm going to see Brendan's hot water injury and I'm going to wave my crutches at you because I've got a broken oh, ankle at the moment. <laughs> and actually, um, I took up cycling. And cycling was the thing that I, I ended up going to during lockdown and I absolutely loved it. And, and I was flying and uh, I got injured recently and it was nothing to do with the bike. It was actually stepping off a footpath. So that was completely freakish. So I've decided that walking is more dangerous than being on the bike. But I do I do see lots of people out, John. I think like I do think the one good thing about lockdown um, is that it's made us all appreciate our public spaces, um, the beauty of the country, the opportunities to get out in it. There's a new, you know, there's a whole new um, greenway run up the middle of the country now through uh, Kildare and Longford. Just, I think there is a new appreciation of that, and I, those those results made sense to me this week. And Sport Ireland have been involved in bringing out some really good little booklets with some of the papers in the last few weeks. There's one out today in Irish Trails when it's actually on cycling trails. So I think we've all come to appreciate the simple things in life, <laughs> and we just sit and, and admire the elite athletes from afar. I suppose must it must be something with, with the age I am as well. I think. Bernard, will you watch the FA Cup final today? Have you any interest in it? No, I used to be really into it, but I, I've completely 
um, lost any kind of attachment to it, unfortunately, which it shows how far it's dropped down the pecking order of uh, of this, you know, the most most watched sporting events. And uh, yeah, I actually I didn't even know until uh, I looked at the itinerary for this and that it was, it was even on today. So I think it's a competition that's lost a huge amount of value. Look, at I'm sure whoever whoever wins it today will be celebrating, but I, I just think yeah, it's lost its allure. It's sad, isn't it, Brendan? It is sad, um, and I'd be very much of the same um, persuasion as Bernard there that in normal years this just wouldn't um, float my boat at all. But I actually find this year I'm actually I, I'm going to make a point of sitting down to it, and the reason is Leicester City because the FA Cup I found um, like I think in the last thirty years the top five. Uh, I refuse to. Sorry, John. I refuse to say the top six, and it includes Tottenham Hotspur. So the man, top Brandon, five, the top <laughs> top five teams have absolutely dominated in something like all but three of the last 30, 32 seasons or whatever. And the problem is if they come up against whatever, a Crystal Palace or a Burnley, yeah, that's a great romantic story until they take the pitch and they get absolutely battered. But the thing about Leicester City is they're third in the league. You know, they've they've, they've proven themselves in, in recent years. There's a hint, I don't expect them to win today, but there's a hint that they could actually do something today and there's enough of an underdog feel about them to kind of have you rooting for them as well. So they've kind of hit that sweet spot for me to kind of, yeah, wouldn't it be great to see Leicester win? And there's actually maybe some chance that they can do it. So, um, but apart from that, like I couldn't tell you, I know Arsenal won it last year. I forget who they beat. Uh, you know, it's the old story. Maybe it's nostalgia getting the better of us again. But um, yeah, I'll be sitting down watching today with some interest, maybe only for half an hour until my expectations are, are swept away again. You know, I'm more interested in the, the, the people like Thomas Tuchel and Brandon Rogers cleaner than the actual game. Yeah, and, and and look, we've said it before here, you know, the culture of the manager, I think, is part of that as well. Like, it is it's so much of sp- uh, football coverage now is about the managers, I find. You know, it's about, like, the psychology of the managers and tactics of the managers. Um, look, it is, I, I, I'm... I used to be really romantic about the FA Cup and I always loved it, but look, money has, you know, destroyed football in some ways, I think, now. So um, I'd be far more interested. I'll watch the Women's Champions League final tomorrow and not tomorrow evening, um, Barcelona against Chelsea. I really like to see that one tomorrow. We saw uh, ladies' football match day travel expenses covered now for the National League. About time, Tina. Yeah, but I'm I'm not and I'm not sure what the parameters of it are. Yeah. Is it just because we're I think it's because we're in this lockdown, isn't it, John? Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's what and that was where they were introduced last year for the championship as well. The basics was the players are gonna to have to travel uh, separately to matches, so therefore we'll give them you know, you would like to see it. Like the 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 WDPA before they amalgamated, you know, brought out those statistics last year, ninety three percent of female intercounty players don't get any expenses. So, you know, at some stage that has to be some 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 improvement has to be made in some way to that, whether it's through sponsors or whether it's through amalgamations or, you know, whatever it is, it isn't fair. That's the one thing to say about it. So it's good to see it, but the only reason it's in at the moment is because of lockdown. And that isn't going to stay there permanently. But one good thing is that they have are going to get the same grants that the government is giving to the male players. And I think that's something that is inarguable, really, if you, if it's coming from government. Bernard, you had Munster and Connacht last night. Yeah, amazing, uh, amazing win for Connacht, obviously on the back of a very difficult uh, match against Leinster the week before. But, uh, you know, I just thought they just took the opportunities really well, showed massive resilience. 
um, got in amongst Munster and yeah it was a great win for them and I, I played with two of their coaches Nigel Carroll and Jimmy Duffy who are moving on um, next month when the season ends and for both of those to finish um, a season in which they beat Munster away, Ulster away and Leinster away which I don't think they've ever done before um, you know it's a nice way to go out uh, but also for, for this young Connor team it's been a it's been an up and down season and uh, I think they'll they'll get a huge amount of belief out of that for Munster it's a bit of a disaster because um, yesterday it was announced that there's more than likely going to be a uh, a Rainbow Cup final, which will be the top of the Northern Hemisphere teams against um, the top South African team in a one-off final. And Munster were looking to be hot favourites to do that because it's only five games and they've beaten Leinster away, so uh, got a bonus point uh, against Ulster. But now it's opened it up massively to the likes of Leinster and Treviso um, to get back into it. So that that could be a, a, a big blow to them. But a great game and, and went right down to the death. I was watching uh, Sky yesterday and they had the revised line schedule coming out. Bernard, uh, they're going to stay in either Cape Town or Pretoria or Johannesburg and they're going to stay in you know limited areas. Now the dust has settled a, a week on, what's your view of, of what Warren Gatlin did in terms of picking a squad? Look, I think there's, there's a lot of people out, there's a lot of outrage in Ireland, but I think it's probably fair enough. I think obviously James Ryan and Gary Ringrose you know, six months ago would have been um, in everybody's squad probably unlucky with injuries and, and a little bit of form and then we got two bolters for me Bundy Aki and, and Jack Conan um, not saying they shouldn't be in but they were surprises so uh, yeah I, I think it's a decent squad a couple of typical Gatlin wildcards um, but I think when you nail that down to the first choice 15 um, and I'm just watching some of the I've been watching some of the South African rugby has restarted obviously with the, the Southern Rainbow Cup um, it's it's going to be difficult for Razzie Erasmus to get that group together um, having played so little rugby so I, I think it's a, it's a squad that's good enough to go down there and, and win a series It's a bit like England uh, when they didn't have the was it the Saracens contingent that came into the Six Nations undercooked can you see a similar situation with South Africa that they'll be undercooked here and at a complete disadvantage? Yeah, and also you've got to have like two extremes. You're going to have the guys who come back from the Northern Hemisphere. So they have players uh, who play in, in Europe um, and they're going to be at the end of a long season. And then, you know, I, I just watched some of the line stormers um, a little bit earlier and yeah, they, it's, they look in really poor shape. Um, now, they haven't played for a year, so it's, it's difficult. But um, it's going to be a big race for him to try and get those guys in um, and you know, if you think of our players, you know the 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 the, the four nations players they played, Champions Cup, Six Nations, um, you know the end of the Autumn Cup. They've played a lot of top end rugby, so they definitely should be better prepped um, than South Africa, which is which is unusual. Um, but we have to make it make it count. Well, Bernard Jackman, Cleena Foley, Brendan O'Brien, we got to leave it there. Thanks so much for your insight and wisdom as always on the Saturday panel. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Cheers, John. Thanks, John. Okay, the Saturday panel, uh, which you can get out on podcast if you missed any of it later on. Uh, Burnley have been hammered by Leeds 4-0 in the Premier League. We'll get a full-time report on that after this break. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 